Season 4, Episode 1 of Strange Brow Radio. My name's Tobe Johnson. Here we go again. We're coming at you a little bit early this time. The drop is a little bit early, and for good reason. And I'll tell you more in a second, but I want to thank our sponsors over at Metallic Monsters, the makers of Blondie, the female werewolf. Yes, a true story. Go check out our archives and check out MetallicMonsters.com. Also, Feral by Aaron, all one word, E-R-Y-N, Alchemy Sound Tools, Drums, Rattles, and Smudge Fans, things that you won't find at your local Pier 1 Imports. No museum-quality, handcrafted spirit tools by Feral by Aaron at Etsy. All right, I'm going to tell you more what's going on. We'll be right back. A little bit early with Season 4, Episode 1, and it's always nice to be able to come at you as often as early as possible. So I shuffled the deck around, and here we here we are again. This episode has been in lockdown for good reason. Mainly for the reason of persecution from the person that did the interview, entitled Satan's Helper. And so for that reason, I had to do a little bit of editing in order to bring it back up, and People were wondering where it went. Well, it was at least three years ago I did this interview, so I'll tell you more about our guest in a second. Fascinating guest. But first I want to announce that the Al Moon Lab book is finished. It is available now in paperback form and ebook form anywhere I guess you can find books. Um, mainly, I guess people are going to go to Amazon. Go right on ahead. I think it's $14.95 for the paperback. And there you'll find over 170 pages and three and a half years of, uh, well, longer than that, more like 15 years of research, but intensively the last three and a half, including in that, is a heck of a lot of audio, video, paper documents, and observations that you'll be able to stream, download via QR codes. Now... There is a synopsis in the forward of the book on what a QR code is and how you interact in the pages, but pretty much you just put your phone on camera mode, point it at the QR code on the page, literally, and there you'll be able to access exactly what is in the paragraph. So if I'm talking about Bigfoot, there may be a QR code on Bigfoot trackways. If I'm talking about Ghost, there may be a QR code talking about audio. If I'm talking about gifting, there'll be a QR code associated with what I mean by gifting and the paperwork and so on. So I think there's well over two hours worth of video, audio, and uh, screen captures of paperwork uh, throughout this thing. I, I hope you enjoy it. I mean, it was a, a lot of work on mainly <laughs> a lot of work on uh, Doug Highcheck's part, Andrea Billups' part, Blaine and Alex Highcheck. And the idea of putting in a QR code embedded inside the pages of a book is a brilliant idea that I certainly didn't think of. The high check, the high check team did over at Hangar One Production. And I'll make a small announcement. If you want a book published, you can go get your book published over at Hangar One Production. All you got to do is check out Hangar One, the number one, I'm saying production too, Hangar One Publishing check out hangeronepublishing.com and there you'll be able to find 
the books that they've already done and how to get a book to them to get published. And they'll take good care of you over at Hangar One. Now, if you go over to Amazon and, and get a hold of this book, you'll be able to uh, write a review. I hope you would. Let me know exactly what you thought of it. Um, it was a lot of work, and I hope we did justice by all of the stories that I was involved with. So thank you again to uh, the Adams family and all of the extended experiencers who let me into their world to take a harder look at the conundrum that is the paranormal and the Sasquatch paranormal conundrum at that. Now today's guest is going to be secluded, shrouded in mystery because of the fact that his name was used on Google Analytics and the algorithms in order to banish him from possible prospective employers. And not to get too much into it because of that fact, uh, the witness, after we did this interview entitled Satan's Helper, which is about the temple of Satan and being a Satanist, which this witness is, he found that before he went in for an interview, that the prospective employers were Googling his name, which I guess they do to look at your social media now before they actually look at your resume. And they were finding his name associated with uh, this episode entitled Satan's Helper. So we had a back and forth actually for the last couple years regarding how to tear this episode down. So I just decided to lock it up as much as possible on my end. And because of that, many of you don't even know this exists. So this is the re-edited version. There should be no names uh, within this. And if there is, there certainly isn't any, any last names associated with it. But I think I did my part. It actually was really heartbreaking for me to pull it at the time because it is such a great episode. Uh, the witness and his son both show up at a pizza parlor to talk about Satan. And honestly, I'm nervous to do it just based upon the fact that I already met this witness once before and I could tell he is uh, you know, highly educated. I think he went to Columbia University, uh, is now a, an adjunct professor, I believe, over at the University of Oregon, um, a writing professor, really well-spoken, knows his stuff as it uh, involves these sects of Satanism and Catholicism and the rituals behind them and the misnomers behind them, the reality of becoming a Satanist and, and what it entails. And his point of view is expressed so eloquently that uh, I ended up really, you know, liking the guy. And I think you will too. So hold judgment and listen to the story that is conversation between me father and son, entitled Satan's Helpers. We have come together here in a pizza restaurant of all places. Actually, a, if you can imagine a carousel outside of a shabby, chic, country-style uh, wallpaper, you'd have a, a small image of what we're dealing with here. I think it's actually a carousel on its way out the door and a new one's being built for these guys here. But this is my, I think this is a childhood memory of mine, actually. This is the same carousel I grew up in all those years ago. And uh, it's near uh, where 
Washington's place of residence is, so thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, thanks for having me. <laughs> so we ordered a pizza here, we have a beer in hand. These are all good things here. Thanks for joining us. We wanted to talk to you, at least I wanted to talk to you about everything that you and I discussed earlier regarding your religion. Would you call it your religion? It's a foundational set of principles, and when it comes to most Satanists, and we'll define that term a little bit later on, some folks would say it's more a mindset. Others are more into the dogmatic aspects, the ritualistic aspects, and for me, I encountered Anton LaVey and the notorious black book, the Satanic Bible, when I was about 12 years old. And despite a journey that's included explorations with Obad Druidry, with neo-paganism, and even a brief bout of belief uh, about five years ago, four rays back into the Christian church, Satanism has remained a staple in my life. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that goes away because Satanism is not so much encountering a set of principles and then deciding whether or not it's for you, but it's rather coming upon something and saying, that is who I am. Anton LaVey once wrote that Satanists are not made, they're born. And this is something I absolutely agree with. And when we talk about what exactly defines a Satanist, which is... Well, let's talk about that statement there, what Anton LaVey said. Okay, so... They're not made, they're born. Explain that in your terms. He once said, think of Satanism as like Ayn Rand with some dogma, and that's not far from the mark. What a Satanist really is, to me, is a social humanist. It's an individual, whether or not they fall on the theistic or the atheistic side of things. Satan serves as a symbol, and the word itself semantically means the adversary, the opposite. And what that means to someone, whether they actually believe that that's an anthropomorphized entity or whether it's a personification of the self, it's recognizing that one dwells in opposition to the mainstream. It's encountering the Judeo-Christian traditions that we're familiar with here in the West and throughout much of the predominant world and saying, no, that's absolutely not for me. And as you go deeper, into reading the materials, the one thing that you'll encounter, what I think LaVey was getting at is he's laying out the philosophy for positioning oneself as their own God. This has nothing to do with worship. This has nothing to do with reciting vows or saying that I am a selling my allegiance or my soul or something like that. As a matter of fact, there's a chapter in the Satanic Bible uh, Paradoxically, I'm saying uh, how to sell your soul, but what it is instead is it's saying I'm through with the crap. I'm through with trying to position myself to the hegemonic, demonic, mainstream value. I am who I am, and I'm comfortable with that. And ironically, when you hit that point, you may find yourself dwelling in some very satanic territory. Okay, so... It could as well just be uh, against the world without there being a tenant behind it. So why attach yourself to it, a tenant? Like mm -hmm. something that has so much baggage to it commercially and, you know, all of the, all the rumors about regarding this, why not just go as an atheist? It has to do with 
what I was saying foundational principles, what it's more aligning to is a set of guidelines that a lot of us may be familiar with satanic, the nine satanic statements. And just to rattle off a few, because they've been featured in culture, and these are things that you may have heard in various mm -hmm. outlets. Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Satan represents vital existence. Satan represents carnal indulgence. And that's not necessarily something one walks up on the street and says, hey, did you know that I'm into carnal indulgence? And I'm saying, I'm saying this facetiously, but the point is, is that typically Satanists are individuals who, on top of being highly individualistic, uh, they want those trappings. They want that dogma. They want something to cloak and envelop themselves in. They need the ritual in order to kind of feel it and see themselves within it. Is that the rituals mean nothing? Ritual is an expression of what is essentially externalized psychodrama. I mean, the ritual itself is not seeking to invoke actual entities, but rather it's a form of purging oneself of all the negative, deleterious things that eat us up inside. Mm -hmm. And the three rituals that are described in the Satanic Bible, for instance, deal with lust, compassion, and destruction some of our most base emotions. And it serves as an outlet for someone to get that outside of themselves, to act it out in the place of the ritual chamber and to emancipate themselves from those feelings that could otherwise fetter them up. And for a lot of people, the ritualistic aspect is the younger side of things, meaning many practitioners who come upon it, they're very eager to try them out and act them out, but as they go on, it's not something that they need. Mm -hmm. But that term, it's always gonna come back to that term, that satanic mindset. What separates it from the average person walking down the street who would say, I'm an atheist. It's an I-theist. It's taking an extra step. It's recognizing oneself and one's life as sacred. And that is basically a reverse of the golden rule. When we think of the golden rule, we hear do unto others mm -hmm. as we would have them do unto us. And no, the Satanist says, absolutely not. The Satanist says, do unto others as they do unto you. We're cutting a step out of that. And um, th everything that I'm espousing here is almost word for word principles from the Satanic Bible. And there's many sects of Satanism. There's different organizations that have branched off. And uh, taxonomically, we can look at what academically that means. But um, I, I stay close to this material myself, meaning for me, it always comes back to LeVay. As a young, angry 12-year-old who grew up in a very Catholic family, Satanism first served as an outlet. It served as the antinomian force that would allow us, my brother at this point, and I, and like-minded friends to just rage to get it out of us. We're, we're choking down a daily Sunday dose of sulfur and doom when in reality we just said, God, can't we be ourselves? And God says no, but Satan says yes. So you, okay, so you had brothers that were also a part of the Catholic Church, brothers, sisters, a big family? Uh, no, not at all, absolutely not. Um, my one brother, two years older than myself, uh, I'm estranged from, I don't speak with him anymore, but he came upon this material first, and I think for a lot of people who dabble would be the term, it's an intellectual curiosity at first, and then you scratch that itch, feel satisfied, and go off. But then for those of us who the material particularly resonates with, it becomes a huge part of you. And in my teenage years, when I was involved with the ritual end of things, when I was getting together with a couple of guys who 
also felt and dwelt in the devil's fane, as we would call it, uh, rather dramatically. We wanted to see what there was. We wanted to call on the dark and listen and see what would call back. And we found out more about ourselves than I think we, I could say we found out about whatever is on that side. But as people grow, they do or they don't identify with it. And for me, it's remained a constant, so much so that it was an intellectual curiosity I pursued all the way into college until I was doing study at Columbia University in religion. Uh, my particular tradition I focused on was Judeo-Christian, and I started to look into millennialism and utopianism, mm -hmm. intentional communities, some of the negative aspects, and, and we'll certainly talk about that, I'm sure, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s um, in particular, and, and what people think when they hear that term, Satanism or Satanist. Yeah. Okay, so you're introduced to the, the, the philosophy of Satanism by your older brother. Well, he passed the book off, okay. and then after that, he's a tourist. He was on his way out. But, <laughs> a tourist, I like that. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of people who uh, come across uh, Satanism, whether it's film, there's a famous scene in SLC Punk where they're shouting out portions of a ritual in the middle of a, a parking lot or something like that, and uh, you'll, you'll encounter this material everywhere else. It's very important to say this, and I should have said this from the outset, that I have no affiliation with the Church of Satan or the Temple of Satan or any of the organizations that serve as figureheads for Satanism. Uh, very important for me to say this because the Church of Satan has its own representatives, media representatives, and lest someone hear this and think that I'm serving as some kind of an official delegate, I'm not. Uh, Anton LaVey posited from the very beginning whether or not someone wanted to choose to join the church. That's an individual action. But all one needs to do to realistically call themselves a Satanist is live as they would, as they would want to live, uh, free themselves from all of the things that are holding them down, and hey, you're on your way. Okay. Earlier you said that in your youth you would call upon darkness or call upon, what are we calling upon? Explain what you meant by that. So the way that the Satanic Bible handles ritual is that it's got those three that I mentioned before, compassion, lust, and destruction rituals. And it's a formalized series of steps that goes through what listeners who have encountered general neo-pagan or Wiccan rituals may have some familiarity with calling cardinal directions and calling upon what Anton LaVey referred to as the infernal names, all of these names being names that in one culture or time or another represented Satan. And during the course of these rituals, you would choose somebody in particular, like that you wanted to cast benevolence upon or to exercise some repressed portion of sexuality, whatever it would be. And that's where the mystery begins. And, Anton published, uh, and this came from Aleister Crowley first, that the, uh, his idea of magic is, by definition, that which happens in accordance with one's will, which using not normally accepted means would not. And that leaves a lot of room for interpretation as to what that means, but the idea would be garnering a result for something one asks, which normally doing so would not. And whether this is simple Pavlonian conditioning or training one's mind to be more receptive to the things we're asking from the universe, mm -hmm. that's certainly up to debate, but you will encounter a lot of occult figures and individuals who would say, 
but there's something more to it. There's a different dimension. We're going to call on dark forces. One better be ready for those to intercede. And during my time practicing, I can tell you this, that the ritual chambers that we would set up um, as teenagers, we used tents as far and dark out into the woods as we could uh, when we needed privacy, or we would sneak into areas that we felt were particularly receptive. Um, things quiet, and all of a sudden, those fields with the crickets are no longer so loud, and the wind grows particularly still, and as you act a participant in ritual rather than the officiant, you can feel inside of yourself something happening. Mm -hmm. and, and as I said, I'm not ready to just chalk this up to psychological conditioning. I'm not ready to say that I've tricked my mind into the effect that you get when you watch a particularly good horror movie. Um, something is happening in the same way that if someone were deeply devout and a participant in a Christian mass, perhaps they would feel that resonance. But in those moments, that's where you begin to say, am I just out here having a good time or, or is something happening? And in the years that I was ritually active, those woods were not the same woods, both when we came into them and when we left them. Hold that thought. We're going to uh, enjoy a piece of pizza here. And food for thought, we'll have you sit on this question here. Of course, you're already attempting to answer the question as far as what you may have seen or what you have seen or experienced after one of these rituals. We'll be back. I want to thank our sponsor, Farrell by Aaron, yet again. Now, I've mentioned time time again on the show that Farrell by Aaron is our one sponsor, but with a sponsor like this, you don't need any more because the fact is that these spirit tools actually work. And what do they work with? Well, they work with the elements of the earth, and they're housed and built by an artisan out of the Olympic Peninsula, Aaron Jackson. Check out Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N at Etsy.com. Drums, rattles, smudge sticks, and coming soon, alchemy boxes. These are one of a kind, each one one of a kind. We're not talking about a factory here. And as two people told me, her instruments sing, in particular the drums. So check out Feral by Aaron. Give a like, review, subscribe, share, go on the Instagram, and give a little love. May give it right back to you. Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. All right, we're back. And I were talking here through the break, and one of the questions I posed to you, of course, was about spells and rituals and incantations and bringing things forth, things that most people would say are no-go zones, places of foreboding. Don't do it, but yet you're guilty. <laughs> or is that the word? <laughs> All right. So tell us about the moment when you did your first spell incantation and how old you were. Oh, this is great. So I was in the ninth grade, and I'd recently met a guy, Tony, who's no longer with us. He's a good friend who uh, died just a little while back, not related to this. And um, I was in a homeroom, and here's this guy, 
with his umbro shorts and his short spiked blonde hair. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, okay, he's just another jock. But then I see he's reading the Satanic Bible and I'm like, did he steal that from me? Did, was, did, did, was this guy in my backpack? But uh, he wasn't. And uh, as soon as class was over, I walked up and I said, hey, man, are you reading the Satanic Bible? And he says, yeah, what about it? I pulled out my copy. Instant friends. And during that time, this would have been 1997, Tony and I clicked immediately. And one of the first things he asked me was, have you done any other rituals? And I told him, no, but I've been gathering things. And he says, what have you been gathering? So when it comes to Levian satanic ritual, a lot of it is really over the top. You've got your black robes and your black candles, which these are the elements that American cinema will show you. But then you've got some of the more difficult things to get. Chalices, swords, a suitable elixir. LeVay called it the elixir of ecstasy. Think Catholic mass, but all of those things being inverted. Not in the cheap black mass, let's invert this and recite stuff backwards and take drugs sort of away, but being ritualized for formal stages and steps. So when a priest would normally be consecrating the host or the wafer, instead you're wielding a sword and you're pointing it to a cardinal direction. And as kids, we had a pretty good insight into what it was that we were reading and what it was that the Satanic Bible was saying we should do. But we also had that uncertain barrier because for me, I had grown up Catholic. And for anyone who's grown up in the church where Satan is a very real, tangible force, you're not able to shed that conception even as you're sitting there and laughing about God and saying, what a preposterous notion. I'm free of this. It's a whole other thing to grab that sword and light that black candle and to enclose oneself in what LeVay called the intellectual decompression chamber and activate it. So what we did was we planned in that October, we were going to go ahead and we we're going to do our first ritual. And we chose a night of particular significance that all of the listeners, I'm sure, are guessing. We went with Samhain, and we said to ourselves, okay, we're going to do this on Halloween. We're going to do this on Samhain. And Tony lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he had a really good set of property. And it was coiffed on both sides by trees, these deciduous evergreens that went high up into the sky. And then screening us off from the rest of the world was the unharvested corn. We had a good six, seven feet. And I got to Tony's house about 3 p.m. And he and I uh, were talking about what we're going to do. We're waiting for his parents to settle in for the night. It was a nice evening, but it was chilly. It was chilly early. We're gathering all our things and sort of smuggling them into the tent. I've got my backpack full of candles. And instead of using the Satanic Bible, which is a paperback book, we copied out the passages that we wanted to use, the Enochian keys that are in the back. Um, passages that LaVey claims to have filtered through. These were uh, John Dee and Edward Kelly's passages, the Hellfire Clubs of the 17th century or whatever it was. But we had ourselves all ready. And as the sun was waning in the sky, we got out our coffee. But night was coming and here's the essential ingredient that you're not going to read about. Here's the thing that practitioners of any pagan practicer are going to tell you that emotion is key to these things. 
And you can try to intellectualize the process of ritual, but what you're gonna end up doing is perverting it because it's in the heart, it's in the gut when you experience something otherworldly. When you begin to feel that prickle at the back of your neck and your hair standing up and that preternatural tug that maybe something is listening, that's something you have to feel. You can't experience it with your mind. And those guys, the ones who are sitting there and they're trying to intellectualize the process, they are the first ones that go running when something happens. But Tony and I, we had a fairly mature handle and for us it was music. I really loved gothic metal, and heavy metal, and Tony listened to mostly in the same vein. But as the hours grew near, and of course we chose midnight, we had a detached speakers to a CD player and an extension cord. We ran deep out into the field, so we had our boom box. And we waited until midnight, and we timed it so that we had hell awaits and rain and blood as the crescendo right before we started the ritual. And at that point, we went through the stages having written them down on a piece of mead composition paper and we laid it flat so it could be acted as a reference. But Tony and I made a promise. We said, no matter what happens, we're gonna make it through this ritual. Every stage, there's 13 steps to ritual. We're gonna, we're gonna go through each one of them. And I think what we had chosen was a compassion ritual. We weren't quite ready to start throwing venom out at the world. We weren't ready to start asking for the real dark and heavy. But let me ask you this. Before, before you do this ritual, before you start it, you're at the, you know, the pregame as it is right now. Are you, is anybody teetering on backing out? I think more than anything, we were more excited than words could contain. We were sitting there passing that composition book back and forth to each other in high school. We couldn't wait for this night. And we were past calling the infernal names, which is the process of essentially shattering the stillness of the air. We got to the portion of the ritual where you're reading a passage asking for protection, where you're asking to be isolated in the bulwark of the protection of whatever got really cold. The tent walls sucked in like the earth was holding its breath. And I noticed that I no longer felt comfortable. And this is the exact opposite of where you're supposed to be at this stage of the ritual. This was supposed to be for us. And Tony was reading at this point. He was acting as efficient, if I remember right. But I know he was reading. And I was sure that we were no longer alone. I didn't know what that looked like because we had that thin diaphanous sheet of material separating us from the outside. I wasn't looking at the full moon, I wasn't, wasn't looking at the corn, but I knew something was there with us. So we made our way through the rest of that ritual and by the time it's done, you proclaim quite loudly, so it is done, and we strike that bell. There was a silence. He looked at me and I looked at him and we didn't say a word because we knew something had happened. So that's when we left the town. And Tony and I at the time were smoking Marlboros, but we wanted to get far away from the house, make sure his parents didn't smell that smell coming in. And we walked to the edge of the corn 
because there was this nice area that was particularly covered by a tree that hadn't been trimmed back, and we knew that the neighbors and his parents couldn't see us there. And I remember his eyes, they're all lit up, wide as can be. And he's got tears streaking down because he's just so excited. You don't know what to say, you feel it. That energy, it's in you. It's in your legs. It's like you just finished running, but you're not out of breath. But at the same time, if you were to try to do anything, it would be charged with electricity. And I'm, I'm looking at Tony and I said, what the hell just happened? And Tony says to me, I don't know, but we, we, should, we, should, do, we should do a reading. We have, we have tarot cards back in the tent. We're postulating. Here's where the mind comes in. Here's where you over-intellectualize the process. And right in the middle of us standing there, there was this scream that came from that cornfield. And my blood went cold. Tony dropped his cigarette and ran. And I'm three steps behind him. And we made a beeline for that tent. We didn't say a word ourselves. We just ran because whatever it was, it was there. And we dove into that tent and we zipped that tent up and like scared little children, we threw those sleeping bags over us and we listened. And at this point, this is where fear takes over and you, you, you can't know. Everything that happens after that point is suspect. But when we talked about it later, those tent walls were shaking and that breath was coming out way too cold and we were terrified to leave that tent because something, something had joined us there. And the ancillary, the uh, epilogue to the story is, is that we spent a long time on the internet listening to animal sounds, playing the sounds of any creature that potentially would have been out there, a possum, a bird of prey, anything indigenous to the area. And we could not replicate that sound. And then we got together with our musician friend who had a keyboard that could do anything, and he couldn't make that sound. And to this day, I have never heard anything scream like what I heard. But when I heard it, I knew that we were not alone. Okay. Heavy moment. So here you've done, a, you've done spell work, but you're doing a spell not to bring forth an entity. You're doing a spell to bring about good nature, good vibes, right? I mean, so why would, do you feel duped from the fact that you heard something that didn't belong there? There definitely was that feeling. And in the days that followed, that Catholic guilt was like a lump in my throat. And it's like, did I do this? Did I bring something horrible upon myself? Were all those after school specials on point? Ozzy lied to me. But no, no, it's not what it was. I think what it was was it was really actually shaking off that last bit of the mortal coil that was still subsumed with all of that. We were introducing ourselves to the real world in a very Lovecraftian sense when you look at things. Mm -hmm. The idea that one is alone in the universe is preposterous, mm -hmm. but the even more frightening idea that our mind, humankind, can comprehend the things we're calling on, that, that's pure ego. We're not meant to understand that phase of things. But that first experience that we have, whether it's we think we see something or we know we saw, see something, it's up to us to interpret it. Science is never going to put its finger on the pulse. We're never going to get that perfect explanation for what it is we feel. Mm -hmm. But in the days that followed, we grew more comfortable, and then we said, wow, let's do that again. And we did. Wow. 
So in a sense, you look at the scream as being like the last vestiges of your religious nature. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Like it was a part of your old self closing in, kind of like a primal cry of, from the spirit world representing you and your friend? You know what, I think that's rather eloquent, the way that you put that, and that, I, I like that. that. That may be it. And to this day, when I write and I try to come to terms with exactly what happened, I see that it reads like schlocky horror fiction, but it did happen. And the more that I try to understand <clears throat> what it was that joined us there, it's never left. And I don't have a name for it. But I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a, some derivation of exactly what you just said. It was the last part of us that didn't believe leaving us. And even years later, when Tony became very heavily involved with science and became a computer programmer and did some things like that, he never turned his back on the things that we saw and that we felt. And that is something that can only be earned. Uh, there's plenty of people that are eager to reject the experiences of the Christian church that they grew up in or the abuse that they suffer coming up in some kind of a really strong faith tradition. But the one thing that you'll know about someone who's experienced the supernatural is even when they're in company that would deride them or otherwise put them down and say, that didn't happen to you, you see this very serious look steal across their face. And you know they're not going to recant. Mm. Well, now, I saw that look in your face here when you were describing the scream, and it was a familiar look for me, someone who's talked to people for the last 10 years about the supernatural. Do you feel like you still toy with the fact that it was something other than the last little parts of you leaving? Was it, you feel like it might have been an entity on any level outside of you? I do. And the entities that I later encountered when I was training under an Obad uh, Druid, that stands for the Organization of Bards and Druids, uh, we were doing earth magic. We were doing rituals to bring oneself into union with the natural cycles of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, that was where sight became more of the encounter rather than feel. And uh, during the rituals that I would do with him, very often similar circumstances as deep into the natural world as one can, you would see things, um, white blips or, or, or a cloudy vision and, and at first one thinks it's, it's mist or it's something that's moving quick from one's eyes but then shadows move or they don't separate or shadows appear where shadows don't belong and the mind just doesn't have the time you can look for the sun and you can try to make sense of what you're seeing but you know you're seeing something and you just have to accept okay this is happening mm -hmm. and at that point, whatever it was that we called upon, it's not something that I ever felt when I was involved with more neutral-based earth magics. I never felt some feeling of dread in my stomach, but in that moment, when that ritual was on its conclusion, that was dread that sat in the pit of my stomach. It was terror. And I was comfortable until that point. I was positive that what Tony and I were doing was proper. That's the first stage of ritual. You're like, am I doing this right? But then when you get to the exclamatory portions of it, when you're reading the Enochian mm -hmm. Keys, which is this broken up language with a, there's an English transliterated, think of it as really dramatic poetry. Uh, we're reading these keys, and that's when it's no longer resuscitation. It's not just a couple of guys wearing some funny robes. Mm -hmm. You are stepping through that veil, that trod, that space, and there's no coming back. The Enochian keys, so the word Anu, Anunnaki, is it related to that in any way? Um, Enoch. 
Oh, Enoch. Okay, mm-hmm. so the so the first city, Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, d- d- with with biblical inclinations, but like mm-hmm. just to, to to read the text here, and this is Levee's particular spin on it. The magical language used in satanic ritual is Enochian, a language thought to be older than Sanskrit, with a sound grammatical and syntactical basis. And uh, it says that it resembles Arabic in some sounds and Hebrew and Latin and others. I, I've done two years of Arabic and spent a lot of time in that portion of the world, both after service in Iraq. I lived in Jordan. And uh, can, when, when you're listening to it, I wouldn't compare it that way. But that particular evening, we didn't attempt to bastardize the language by using some kind of transliterated version of it. We use the English translated portions. And as I said, it's more like dramatic poetry. But you choose one of these keys that seems provocative to what you're asking. And of course, there's keys that are resonant if you want to cast destruction, just as much as there's keys that are a little more, uh, I don't know, um, to inculcate oneself and to, to ask for peace, serenity, protection, that kind of thing. Okay. So keys being tenants or just certain elements that you're reading off of, just... Describe what you mean by keys. Uh, with keys, I think it's just shorthand for passages, meaning okay, so gotcha. there's 18 keys, 18 passages. Not literal keys or something that's meant to unlock, but um, if one builds... A little bit like unlocking, though. Uh, it seems yeah. to be. I mean, whether it's a tonal quality, which LeVay was a musician by self-training, and mm-hmm. he played the Calliope, uh, the Calliope, and uh, church tents and ritual, music and ritual, they're intrinsic. They go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we think of key, one does hit a register. And if you have a good voice, you'll always notice that in ritual, that voice, it hits its timber. One, one hits the right note, you're going to get a better result. And by better result, I mean you can feel it. Ritual is gauged in efficacy by what one feels inside of themselves, not by external manifestations. I mean, if your goal in committing ritual is to try to get something to show up, I say good luck to you. But if your goal is to go out there and to say, let's call on the dark and see what happens or whatever you want to call upon, and you let your human side feel, if you cast off all of the senses that we overuse and abuse during the day, and you let yourself feel that, you're going to open yourself up to something new that you've never felt before. Some would say that the leader, the founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, had almost a caricature look of what it looks like to be a leader of the Church of Satan. Uh, Just speak to that as far as the garb, the dress, the cloaks, uh, and... What, what would inspire someone to add that almost caricature look to the Church of Satan? So, in effect, it's glamour, the idea. We've, we've all heard of witches' glamour. So, in my case, I'm six foot two, and I've got a very deep voice, and I've got very long hair. As a, as a young guy, I, I, I loved that fear, that amazement. That was my category. And um, that's how I came off to the world. And sometimes that requires a bit of over-the-topness. I would wear top hats or... I mean, granted, you all know about the T-shirts. And um, before I joined the military, I had a Baphomet, which, um, for those who aren't familiar with the term, it's the inverted pinnacle, the five-point star with a goat's head inside of it, and the Hebraic characters Leviathan running counterclockwise. I had that tattooed on my chest because the symbol was so resonant to me. But that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about symbols. We're talking about what it takes to affect it for the outside world. And in LeVay's case, I can't speak for his intentions, but when you watch these interviews, people came at him hard. They came at him very hostile. They didn't take him serious to begin with. So I think his attitude was really screw it. 
Let's, let's have fun with this. Let's really toy with these people. But, and then the way he said it is he would say, um, he called it the good guy badge. Anyone who came to meet him, they'd have to dust off the cross from their first communion and come see him. And he said, if these people could just stop this and come meet me as a man, they'd find about my depth and my complexity. So there's a, there's a lot of names that we associate today. I mean, Marilyn Manson's a recognizable character. He got to meet LaVey shortly before his death, and LaVey made him an honorary priest, and uh, other characters that were involved with the Church of Satan, and it was more an intellectual thing for them. But it the PR, Satan has always served as a scapegoat. We're talking about more than 2,000 years of the dominant majority needing something, someone to point their finger at and say, that. That's the bad guy. And for those of us who willingly take that mantle upon ourselves and say, yep, we know, that's what Satan serves as. Yeah, but to bring, okay, so let me, if you wanted to bring more, is the idea to bring more people into the congregation, into the church? Is it ever that concept? I mean, do you ever approach anybody and prosthesize the church values, or would he, he have recommended that? Oh, the complete opposite. Absolutely not. It's an Epicurean society. It's, it's even, I would go so far as to say, elitist. The reason I myself never joined the Church of Satan beyond the $100 that they were asking when I was a young person was I didn't need to join up with other individuals who essentially were saying, I'm a nonconformist just like all my friends. <laughs> Meaning the idea is, is that Satanists are already highly individualistic uh, individuals, and it's nice to meet someone else who shares your values, but by that same reciprocal token, we're talking about a group of atheists essentially getting together. Mm-hmm. So no the, the, no, the Church of Satan's philosophy has always been the exact opposite. If you want us, we're here. And I shouldn't even use we because the inclusive we wouldn't be correct in this case, meaning I'm an outsider. I'm just someone who's been very immersed with both the literature and mm-hmm. I followed uh, what it is they do. But um, since LeVay's passing, when uh, Gilmore took over, uh, Magister Gilmore, he is far more forward reaching to the public. He's very involved with Twitter and uh, publications and giving interviews. Uh, a wonderful intellectual. He penned a new book called The Satanic Scriptures, which is a series of essays, much in the tradition of the Satanic Bible, but uh, Gilmore's material is a lot more dense. Uh, whereas LaVey's essays were typically two, three pages tops, Gilmore's book has some really long treatises on the subject, and it brings Satanism into the 21st century. And Gilmore has always been very forward about the idea of there is no anthropomorphism morphic devil waiting here. This is a group of individuals who take that name because by their very nature they are adversarial to the grain. They are the antinomians already. So no, no, the church has never been about reaching out or proselytizing or trying to get people to come into the fold. What is asked of you if you wanted to become a member? I wouldn't know. Um, the, the basically, there's... Besides an, uh, money. Yeah, money and an application. They ask a lot of questions about oneself more than anything just to get to know them to make sure uh-huh. that they're material. But if you want to be the sort of individual who would speak on behalf of the church, they're going to vet you, I would imagine. Right. They're, they're going to make sure that you are ingrained and you know the values. And, uh, Is there a church, an actual church someone can go to? Uh, what they lost the Black House, which was the famous house that uh, LaVey had out in San Francisco there, and they relocated and headquartered in New York. Um, they did away with the grotto system, which used to be the system, the only kind of group system where people would meet in various cities and areas. So there's no formalized get-togethers. There's no 
It's all online now? Essentially, yeah, it's an online organization. I yeah. mean, he, Gilmore has really moved it into the 21st century. You seem forlorn about this. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's breaking your heart. It's, it's, it's sad because when I see the pictures of LeVay when he was in the ritual phase, and I spoke about that earlier, the idea that when I was younger, I was very involved with the rituals, and as one gets older, it's not so much about the rituals, but it's about being comfortable with our adult alien identity, as I'm going to call it, the alien elite, I think LeVay said. I, you do want those trappings, meaning you, you want symbols. And I keep saying that word, you want personifications, things that remind you of, of that connection. And, and you don't right. have that as a Satanist. And meaning it's deep in the Catholic Church. I mean, there's a lot of ceremony going on for you from childhood. Is it part of you wanting that Catholic version of Satanism? That, that's, that's rather insightful. Um, I think some of us may, may start that way, and I think that the individuals who get very heavily entrenched in the ritual and ceremonial side, the more paranormal side of things, I, I would suspect that if you were to take a look into their backgrounds, these are individuals who have had some form of religion in their youth. I, I don't think it's the kid who grows up with the agnostic parents who shrug at the very mention that end up going on and becoming involved with ritual. For me, I had an itch that needed to be scratched, and I pursued it all the way through a bachelor's degree and then even some graduate study in coursework at Coastal Carolina University because I hadn't had my answers yet. Mm -hmm. And while it shifted away from Satanism and uh, I found my own particular curiosities in the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons, and some of the new American religion that absolutely fascinated me, mm -hmm. a, a, a faith tradition which has mystery and temples and all kinds of things that to the outsider are difficult to fathom, I think that you're always going to see that we gravitate to that. You're not going to get good attendance in the church, which is just the church of feel good, I mean the church of Joel Austin might have a lot of people, but it's because that man's got to get out there and tell you how you're going to make yourself rich and famous or comfortable with oneself. But uh, instead, with the Satanist, there's always, for me, a sense of longing. It's nice when you encounter a like mind. And I've made friends just by seeing them wearing a bath mat around their neck or having an interesting t-shirt on at a concert. I do heavy metal photojournalism and I, I travel and cover cruises and events. And uh, when I meet individuals, you can always tell the difference between I'm wearing this t-shirt because it pisses off somebody versus I have some deep thoughts about this very highly specific sigil. Right, and most people know. aren't deep with it. I mean, that's really the the fall down of all things is there's no depth to the discussion. So if I saw someone with a Baphomet chain, I would assume that they went to Hot Topics and that was about as deep as it got, right? Yeah, no, that's about on point. It's very superficial. Uh, you're not going to find the, the really initiated, and that's the term I'm going to use, and that, that, that needs a little clarification, but you're not going to find the initiated going around and broadcasting it, unless they have some commercial purpose that satisfies them. I mean, some people make a living out of it. They open interesting horror homes, or they have museums. I, I was in, where was it? It was in North Carolina, um, forgive me here, Wilmington. Wilmington has this fantastic, strange museum where a chair from, from LaVey, um, from the Black House, is there with a picture of him above it. And wouldn't you know it, that even though they have all this stuff in there, serial killer letters and autographs and um, shrunken heads, when I came to LaVey's chair, the woman working behind the desk got this look of panic and she said, I'd ask you to please not touch that. I won't say you can't, but please don't touch that. People who've sat in that have had very bad things happen. And uh, boy, did I want to take a moment and say, can I tell you a little bit about Anton LaVey? I had that proselytizing <laughs> right, urge. Right, right. But you don't. You, you don't in that moment. Allow people to hold on to those preconceptions because although I think that I've freed myself from them, mm -hmm. uh, it, it 
A Satanist is someone who's going to self-initiate. Um, there, there are baptism rituals that people do more than anything. It's just like I said before, we want to emancipate yourself from the before. You want to wrap yourself in the now. But it's not a requirement. There's no organization that I'm aware of that it makes it a formal part of their initiation that one has to go through a baptism. But there, there's very dramatic rituals. The satanic baptism calls for one entering in a white robe and casting it off, uh, to, to be casting off one's guilt, and they're nude during the ceremony. And they're brought through all four of the elements, you know, earth, fire, water, and we, we, we discuss, um, and by we, I, I have participated in these baptism rituals before, uh, what it means to be entering this new state of consciousness, what it means to be free from what they had before. And the rituals are very personal. They're very beautiful. I would, I would compare them to a wedding or even a funeral in that, in that sake. It's for the participant uh, in the case of the baptism. But uh, when it comes to a funeral, um, that's very much for the people who are participating. And that may be a good way of looking at satanic ritual. It's not uh, for the entities and, and the beyond. It's for the participants. This initiation process, um, would it behoove a satanist to hide the initiation and hide their true identity, say, like in the Catholic Church? Would we be surprised who's actually a secret Satanist? I think that's where you're going to find the very dangerous ones. I mean, naturally, it goes without saying, but here, let's give that disclaimer that I'm sure that everyone needs to know. Satanism does not advocate harming oneself, others, and especially children or animals. These things are the most precious things in the world, innocent and pure. Um, that is propaganda, that is lies, but when you hear about satanic ritual abuse, when you read about all of the reports from the 90s, these were very deeply disturbed Christians who were coming up with this material. Mm -hmm. And for the few individuals that do go out and commit these hideous offenses and abuses, they're very deeply disturbed individuals, but it's not Satanism that's done this damage to them, it's mm -hmm. the Catholic Church. It's all of the hatred of the Christian Church that's been pumped into them when they're told that this evil exists and they choose to associate themselves with it. But um, it depends on one's aims. I would think that the Satanist is going to be the individual who's content to dispense that information on a need-to-know basis mm -hmm. because it doesn't serve them one way or another. It's a self-identification. We don't get anything in society from making that mm -hmm. identification. And if you do, it's probably because you're on a stage somewhere strumming a guitar or doing that. I mean, hell, you and I are sitting down here because a casual conversation came up and uh, you mentioned what it is that you do. And I said, hey, I, uh, this is what I do. But that's the sort of conversation that only happens from one from the initiated right. to the other. And, and by that, I mean that you, know, you yourself are initiated with paranormal activities, that you have an interest in those things. So I think you're going to find the crazies. I think you're going to find the dangerous ones lurking in the church, not hiding outside of it. Okay, explain this to the average listener. What I'm doing is holding my thumb, uh, pinky finger, and spell finger up in the air. Now, explain exactly what that is to people that don't know. The cornu is the gesture, and some people would call it throwing horns. Uh, it was popularized in heavy metal culture by Ronnie James Dio, and, of course, Gene Simmons tried to say that he... Uh, he patented that, but no, it was uh, Ronnie James Dio. It was a tradition in uh, where he grew up, where his grandmother would be walking down the street, and, and she was invoking protection. It was a symbol of protection. It was throwing to ward away the evil eye, and that's become synonymous with heavy metal. But 
For those who throw the horns, it can mean anything from rock on all the way down to hail Satan. And remember, that is a rather idiomatic and somewhat paradoxical statement. Hail Satan does not actually mean hail Satan. It, it, it's, it's essentially saying, I'm free. That's what I hear every time I hear the term hail Satan. It's an exclamatory sigh of relief. It's like saying, oh, hell yeah. Well, it's the same thing, at least for me. So when you see, okay, so if you go on Google, you'll see images of people in powerful places, including the presidency, where they'll be throwing horns. And it seems like a very odd thing to do for someone in power. And it makes you wonder, like, have they been initiated? Is that a possibility? Not to anything that I've been talking about during this uh, podcast, but I would think that there are definitely secret societies who borrow the trappings of either popular culture or older traditions, Uh and that that's those subconscious moments where you get some doofus like George Bush throwing his horns out to the world and not realizing exactly that that gesture has a very important quality. So it's just like a frat boy move. Frat boy move, but God only knows. I mean, are we talking skull and cough and axe and bones? Are we talking about these societies here? Because uh, there's definitely things lurking in the Ivy Leagues, and I can tell you from my Ivy League experience as a Satanist in the Ivy League, I was never offered an initiation, but there definitely were individuals who congregated and walked in twos and fours and ate the same meals and went to the same parties, and you always wondered, you're like, okay, are these guys just uh, part of a frat or, uh-huh. you know, what, what is going on there? Yeah. What do you know about Bohemia Grove? Anything? No, no, I'm not familiar. Bo- oh. Bo- Bohemian Grove? Where the... Powerful elite all meet in Northern California, up above San Francisco, and uh, have a child in effigy burn in front of Moloch, a giant stone owl in the redwoods. Yeah. No, you've got one on me. I'm not familiar with that. I mean, when I hear that, I think of no. the Oh, no, that's all right. Just so people know, uh, we're sitting here with son, and uh is well aware of everything that we've talked along the way here. And... Uh, We'll just go ahead and bring this up, too. You were alluding earlier to the fact that there was a tougher time where there was, would we call it like a spiritual battle between what what church you were going to go to? You were around for that time there. So describe a little bit about what we're talking about here, because you, you're trying to look for a conversion. You're looking for Christ to see if there is actual supernatural entity, a God son of God, actually. And you came up empty. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a long story, but I'll see if I can condense it. Um, when I, perfect timing, we're just talking about the Ivy Leagues. When I made my way up to Columbia University, I think it's important to self-identify. I'm a high school dropout, uh, not for academic purposes, but rather I happened to be that unfortunate kid who was wearing black trench coats and dyed his hair black, his three feet of black hair. Uh, and that was at the time of the Columbine shootings, and that was a new wave of satanic panic. And um, I was tired of being called down to the office and told to take off my Baphomet and my satanic t-shirts, and I'd had it. So I I left high school, and I did my GED even before I was allowed to. The Army was um, very kind, and they said, okay, we'll take you down there, but you better not make us look like assholes. And um, I, I passed it on the first shot. I was not even quite 17 years old, but one thing and another, after community college, I ended up at Columbia University. And during my time there, I ended up majoring in religion because uh, it started with just taking an ancient Judaism elective course. But the more I began to investigate Christianity with a theoretical lens rather than being 
in the church, I became fascinated and said, okay, I'm gonna interrogate this hypocrisy uh, academically. I mean, I think the one thing about atheists is they tend to be folks who love to try to take the faith out from someone's feet. It's, it's, they almost feel it's like their obligation or their duty. And uh, during this time, during this process, I had separated from the woman who would later become my wife and life was very good. I was the thinnest and healthiest I had ever been and I was seeing a particularly wealthy uh, graduate student who had a really great condo down on 66th Street and um, it was everything that you would wanted for your life, meaning talk about a satanic life. Here I am among the uh, intellectual elite, uh, an Iraq veteran getting back on his feet, dating a pretty woman and I was so empty and I became aware of this gnawing emptiness inside of me and I couldn't quite put a finger on it. Uh, for the first time in a very long time I had money and I had access to being me, not having to hide being this intellectual that the army discourages. And I remember one night I was walking home on Broadway. I choose to walk. It was a beautiful night and I had my headphones on as I called them my bullshit blockers and I would walk up Broadway with my hair swinging in the breeze and I couldn't have been happier but as I was walking I was standing in the shadow of these remarkable old churches and cathedrals in New York City and it's impossible to walk past them the way that one walks past other people that anonymity that one gets in a big city mm. and I felt these churches, that's, that's how I'm gonna call it. In the same way that I felt that ritual and I felt that scream, I knew something was reaching out to me. And I never felt more impotent and miserable than I did in that moment. And I realized that all of this endless yammering about being this atheist, satanic version of myself, being an anti-theist is what I'm gonna describe it as. In one moment, it was no longer any good. I mentioned Mormons earlier. My very best friend on this planet is a Mormon, a very devout guy, he and his wife. And we love to have our arguments, screaming, raging arguments in the night. And I called him about a week after the fact, and my voice was hollowed out and empty, and I think I was even a little drunk, and I sort of croaked out to him. I said, I think God's talking to me. And I was so embarrassed because I had positioned myself as this great Satanist all my life. The guy who was ready to take your faith and, and give you something and replace it with. Uh, and by replace it with, I meant emancipation, not Satanism. And Chad, uh, wonderful guy that he was, very patiently said, well, that's really great. He said, sometimes the spirit speaks and whispers, other times it shouts. And that began my foray into Christianity again. I started with the Episcopal Church. I absolutely couldn't reconcile the idea of being in the Catholic Church, not only because of the trauma of growing up under a sulfur and hellfire set of priests, but um, a church that discriminates against homosexuals and, and people uh, that do not deserve this, this level of, it's just, it's wrong, it's absolutely wrong. And um, the Episcopal Church was a welcoming place, but couldn't find Jesus. I was looking for him. And I continued with my courses. And I took every course you could ever imagine. I took ancient Christianity, mm -hmm. contemporary Christianity, ancient canon law, Judaism. And uh, I tried and I tried and I tried. So I didn't find him there. And when I did find myself darkening the steps of the Catholic Church, it was not as a believer, but rather as an administrative assistant uh, working for an, running an entire parish. 
and having the opportunity to see the faith lives of people behind the scenes and how mm -hmm. deeply it affected them. And I felt at home in the Catholic Church, and I can't explain that. I expected mm -hmm. to walk in with guilt and sin hanging and dripping off me, but it was a very welcoming place, very different from the place I experienced in the late 80s and the early 90s. Mm -hmm. But once again, no matter how hard I tried, even as my son came along and my son confessed and he said to me, Dad, I believe in God, and we tried as a family. Mm -hmm. We went as a family, but... A different, uh, besides going to a mm -hmm. just regular Protestant church, you, you worked at a Catholic church, though, mm -hmm. but I sense, like, anger. Like, there seems to be more than you came up short. There mm -hmm. seems to be anger. Is it anger at God? It's a frustration with yeah. myself, and it's, it's an anger and a frustration where I became absolutely certain that there is... Or anger at the notion of God? Well, I, I do now believe that there is an intercessory God. I'm firmly convinced when that reached out to me, it wasn't just an awareness. Mm -hmm. I began to see fate's design. I, 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 I caught the pattern, and I said, nope. This isn't all chance and coincidence. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'm going to make a sharp departure from many, many Satanists in that I, I would refer to myself as a deist. Mm -hmm. But I searched in the Catholic Church, and I searched in the Episcopal Church, and then I searched in the Methodist Church. And that journey took me all the way into seminary, where I was a seminarian. And I wanted to serve as a veterans chaplain. I wanted to see if I couldn't help people who were having these crises of faith like I did, mm -hmm. but be able to give them some psychological intervention as well. And no matter how hard I tried, I made it that far, and I finally gave up because I absolutely couldn't resonate with the words. I didn't believe in Christ. I never found Christ. Whether or not Christ was some itinerant faith worker or a miracle hero 2,000 years ago, I don't know, but I do not believe that he is the Son of God here to redeem our sins and, and to save us and staunch us from our own wickedness. So when I left, I am where I am today, and this was back in 2014, so we have five years of retrospection in saying the following. I would refer to myself as a, a satanic deist, which if there ever was an oxymoron, that's it. But I'm comfortable with it, and I think that if you ever meet a satanist who doesn't have some level of contradiction, you're not talking with a satanist, you're talking with uh, somebody who's got a very poor conception of it. Well, yeah, it's just somebody who's logical about random order and how difficult it is to make things out of randomness. You know, generally things break down, but they seem to build up over a generation of time. But um, that would be difficult, I guess, for most atheists to, to believe in. Um, can I ask you a question? Again. Growing up with a dad who's dabbled in, you know, Christianity, dabbled in Satanism, what has it done to you spiritually? Well, I can tell you this, that I've never been able to catch on to one religion myself. Uh, after all, we've, at every, at every point of the, my life, there's always been every type of Bible around the house. And my dad, I know, he would be okay with me getting into any religion I want. Mm. And I believe in the values of Satanism and the tenets, mm. but I also believe in Christianity and that there's a God. I would never want to believe that there's nothing, there's nothing else after this. I don't want to believe in a pitch black. It terrifies me. And I would like to believe in something, even if it's terrifying, beautiful. And it's really put me at a standpoint where I don't know what to believe in. Because there's so much going on otherworldly that we just can't see in this world. And you never know what to expect afterwards. Well, that's what I like about both of you guys, that you're not selling out your intellect and to do the hard work and look into 
the truth, right? Because how many actually believe in what they believe? You know what I mean by that? Like, they, they want the insurance of faith. You know, they want the safety of salvation. But you guys are willing to say, hey, you know, I'm willing to risk it all right now. If I found truth here, this is where I'm going to stay. And um, it's, you know, that kind of intellectual pursuit is always happy. I'm always happy to talk to somebody who's seeking that. And you're extremely well-spoken. How old are you? I'm 15 years old. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I'll see him in Colombia in probably two years. <laughs> nice. Cool. I, I think maybe the best way to chalk up what we're talking about here, Voltaire once said, doubt is uncomfortable, but certainty is absurd. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than having doubts Mm-hmm. but to entertain the notion that we, as flawed human creatures, have stumbled upon a truth, well, that way lies madness. We're here again with and his son, and future author. It looks like you're, you're in the middle of writing a book. Yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I am. Um, I've published some short stories, and uh, right now I'm working on a thesis novel, Uh, for my program at the University of Oregon. It deals with something a little outside the context of what we're talking about, but I had the opportunity, or maybe I should say the misfortune of growing up in an area that is very deeply victimized by drug culture and trafficking, and uh, heroin is a huge problem where I come from, and I've lost friends and lovers to it. And um, the thesis novel that I'm writing talks about the intercession of some of the organizations that push those drugs and uh, explores the territory of people trying to get out of that pit. I myself had the good fortune of parents who kept me above and outside of that, but it was in my schools and in my friends' homes, and um, I think the novel's going to speak to that, but I also write nonfiction as well, and uh, some of the things we're talking about, I have a collection that I'm working on called Fucking Up Better, The Satanic Dropout's Guide to the Ivy Leagues. And this collection speaks to these experiences of growing up Catholic and choosing to leave school. One can't make a bolder, more dangerous move than dropping out of high school, but Mm -hmm. somehow this strange journey's taken me here, and I wouldn't take any of it back. A service member, veteran, and actually wounded veteran at that point. Hey, did you ever get your motorcycle license? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Team Oregon here, it's a great program. And uh, the first time I took the test, it was snowing, and uh, I had a bullet damage in my left hand, and I couldn't even control the clutch by the time we got to the test. But yeah, I nailed it the second time, so. All right, motorcycle expert will add on to a CV here. <laughs> All right, thanks for talking to us. Oh, the stuff that happened in pizza restaurants. That was my interview, my largely censored interview, which I I hate to do that sensor sound to to people. I try to make it as soft as possible, but if I just do a cut edit, it's transitionally going to be, I think, more, you know, difficult for the listener to to deal with. So I have to put that little sensor beep in there as well. And like I said, for good reason, for the fact that the guy was trying to, you know, find prospective employers and this episode was popping up in there. So no names associated with it. Uh, I don't know how things are going in their world right now. Uh, I would say that I've talked to them in the last year. Uh, it would have been yeah, sometime in early 2020 that we last communicated. I don't know if there'll be a follow-up interview at all with him and his son, which was a total surprise to me. And there was a lot of nervous laughter on my end after going back and recutting this. Uh, I could tell uh, I was uh, intellectually uh, 
inferior to the conversation and the history of the Temple of Satan. And it showed, but it was uh, a challenge. And I look forward to more challenges like this in the future. If you have a challenge for me, get in touch with me at strangebrowradio at gmail.com. I'd love to sit down with you, perhaps this time at an Italian restaurant with a glass of vino. Let me know. Shoot me an email. It doesn't have to be about uh, anything cryptid related. I kind of like it when it's not nowadays, especially since I've been so immersed in the Al Moon Lab, a paranormal experiment, which is available. Go find it over at your local bookstore, which is going to be probably online over at Amazon. Helps out the show, and um, I'd like to hear your opinion about it all. Let me know what you think of these QR codes. That's the Al Moon Lab, a paranormal experiment. All right, that's it for me. I'll be back again soon, relatively soon, with episode two of season four. Don't forget, we have something coming up in October over at Manresa Castle. And that's going to be the great debate between Rich Germo and Brent Dill. One-on-one, on stage, with me, back and forth, flesh and blood, Sasquatch conversation, or is this the woo? Is the woo true? I believe it is. That's why I won't be moderating it. I do have another moderator selected. So, to be fair, I'm stepping away from the microphone and going to just simply be filming everything, making sure that the tech side is good. That's it for me. I will be back soon, I promise. For any of you out there that feel alone right now in this ever-changing, inoculated world, you are not alone. You are not alone at all. And of course, I will see you in the trees. Mm -hmm.